Paul Lansky is a project lead at Dapnode. Paul, welcome to the Ethereum Cat Herders podcast. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. So why aren't we all running our nodes? Isn't that what Satoshi wanted? That like, you know, we all get our own client software. We start running everything locally. Like, why aren't we all doing that? Why aren't we all indeed? Yeah, so I think there's kind of like the myth that running nodes is complicated. And honestly, it can be quite challenging if you're on your own and if you've never liked, if you don't have any sysadmin experience or, or anything of sorts. But the truth is like there's so many tools around running nodes and there's so many scripts and there's so many already made like services that uh, there's really no excuse except for that people are not getting any immediate benefits from it. So full nodes are not incentivized in any way. And you only get to want one for yourself whenever Infura goes down or whenever Infura bans the IPs that are coming from your country. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh shit, maybe I, I should have my own nodes. But it's truly not complicated to run one. And if the protocols had more incentives to run nodes, people definitely, definitely do the work that's necessary to learn how to run one. So it all comes down to laziness, not feeling an immediate need for it, and lack of incentives, which is changing with Ethereum 2. You mentioned ETH2 there, which is interesting. I take it you mean that with ETH2, not that there's a specific incentive for running a full node, but that there's no difference in the software being run between someone who is running a full node and someone who's actually validating and attesting, uh, like attesting or proposing new blocks. Is that what you meant by saying that ETH2 helps solve the node running issue? Yeah, exactly. So what we what we saw is we saw a big increase on the nodes that were that were run by uh, so in a decentralized manner in like in, in different hardware when ETH2 or formerly known as ETH2 now known as cons Ethereum consensus layer came out and the, the proof of stake came out because a lot of people realized that they had to run their own node. It's not necessary, but it's just easier and you have less latency issues if along with your consensus layer node, you also run your execution layer node. So we saw an, an increase of nodes and, and most people, most solo stakers, most people that stake in their own homes with their own hardware understand that. And especially this will happen as well after the merge when this latency issue will be will definitely be huge and, and people will mostly have to run their own execution layer nodes if they don't want to be targeted for um, very particular attacks. So running the execution layer nodes is not incentivized per se, but... It becomes a need if you want to have a, a consensus layer node and participate in the validation. So it's kind of like secondhand incentive to, to run your execution layer nodes. Interesting. And, and I guess the way that really differs from the mining scene and proof of work is that most of the mining is kind of concentrated in different pools, but those pools only need to run really one one instance of a client is 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 that correct yeah absolutely this is this is completely correct not to say that that ethereum proof of uh proof of stake is not also very much concentrated with with different pools 
actually this is this is kind of an issue that that you and Christy spoke in in the previous in a previous episode of of this podcast but mostly like people are are running more nodes than than in in proof of work for sure mm-hmm. what you need from the node is is more specific and more constant you need to do more constant requests to that node interesting and from where i've looked at it just like from my own vantage point it's always seemed like in terms of incentivizing running a full node just running a full node that there's always a bit of a civil issue with it that in theory if you if you're willing to incentivize running one that means someone can spin up one and then just basically set up endpoints that all refer back to it and try and simple attack that way. It, it, do you see that as one of the big issues in incentivizing just running a full node? Yeah, for sure. There's When I was thinking about incentivizing nodes, there's very little good ways of doing it. Like, how do you prove that your that when you that when you receive a request you're actually like serving this request from your own node that you run yourself or you're getting this from from a third party node right this is this is definitely a big issue and something that we're trying to we've we've investigated in dap node by using tpms some sort of like hardware modules that can prove that that they are unique but it is not really easy it is not really a problem that that we have dedicated enough resources to resources to. Uh, I would say like one of the projects that are doing this or are mitigating this the most are a pocket network. And the solution is not a technical solution, but an economical solution. If you require you require certain types of stake, and then if you are caught cheating, then you you will lose lose this stake. From there, probably the easiest place to jump to is Obviously, we all want to see the success of the ecosystem, but being that there is oftentimes this kind of hesitation, people are either lazy or they feel like it's going to be hard. What what current incentives would you say really propel people to run nodes for the ecosystem that are running nodes today? So people are running nodes mostly because they get money out of it, mostly because they are directly monetarily incentivized to do it. Before Ethereum 2, there was very, very little nodes that were being run by independent parties, and it was mostly hobbyists. And that's when it was actually quite lightweight to run an Ethereum node. Now, it takes about 600 gigabytes, depending on the implementation uh, of the execution layer node that you're running. And the only reason why we're seeing this increase is because people are literally incentivized to run an execution layer node and have better performance when staking in consensus layer. So you have your own execution layer nodes, you can stake better, you miss less at the stations, you have a lower inclusion distance. It's just basically because you're you're trying to get or to maximize your profits on the consensus layer that you would want to run a an execution layer node. That's not to say that that a lot of people don't approach us that node to to say like hey so with what's happening now with impure censoring IPs and specific countries we need to now learn how to be self-sovereign. But I would say self-sovereignty is more like a second thought in the in the space which I think it's actually quite negative that we're leaving it as a second thought because originally the reason why why many people including myself got here is because 
we sort of like had the the impression that by building on top of the centralized infrastructure and on top of the centralized systems or ecosystems, we would be able to circumvent certain types of censorship, like state censorship. We would be able to build our own products or products that, that do not depend on yeah. other people's infrastructure or that cannot be controlled by other people. So we kind of lost that and it's a little bit sad. But the main reason, I would say like 95% of the people in the Dabnode community run their execution layer nodes because that's best way that uh, the better way, the best way of getting the best performance out of their uh, consensus layer proof of stake. And does that mean you're not releasing people run execution layer for data purposes? I, I, I definitely have heard kind of in my corner, people who just want to be able to make sure they can query and get the data that they want. But you're saying on the DAP node end, you're not seeing that as a as a use case so much? Right. So so on my end, what, what I'm seeing was like, or, or we're dealing with the type of uh, user that we're seeing in, in DAP node or that uses DAP node is a sort of like an independent staker or independent validator or somebody that, that is not really a developer. This is what we could consider closer to mass market. Those are not developers. Those are people that, why would they need to query the chain? They wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it. Like they can use, they can do that on top of their node because they're already having it. But it is very unlikely that they would have the need to query the node and then decide to deploy a node and then use it for staking or validation. This is not the way that people are usually in our user base. This is not the path that people are taking. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I, I guess from that angle, you're really seeing DAP node kind of abstract away a lot of that technical difficulty that you were mentioning before, like taking away node running, looking technical and looking very, and looking complicated. This is probably as good a time as any to kind of even dive in a bit more to what DAP node is. So uh, how would you describe DAP node? So DAP node is a, is a platform. It's Docker-based and can be installed on top of any Debian distribution or Ubuntu distribution. And it's free open source software that basically provides like a nice UI and a set of tools for everybody to deploy any type of the centralized network nodes that they want in their own machine. In other words, it turns your old laptop into a node running machine that has auto updates, that has a DAP store, that has a VPN that you can tunnel into from wherever you are in the world. The, the only prerequisite really is that you have to install it into a machine that's going to be running 24-7 because, I mean, nodes, if you want to keep them in sync, they need to be running 24-7. Uh, but, but that's pretty much it. It's like something that abstracts all the technical difficulty out of running nodes. One thing that's very important for us at, at Dapnode is like sort of like this self-sovereignty that, that we were talking about. When you're using Dapnode and when we talk about a Dap store, you can see that you can install like a, a Bitcoin node and a Zcash node, an Ethereum Classic node. You can install a Prism a consensus layer validator. You can install Geth, you can install Nethermind. Um, and when you install this, what you're seeing, what you're, you're never connecting to a to a server that DAP node maintains. You, we have our own repository in an Ethereum smart contract. So the DAP node 
who hosts an, an Ethereum node looks into its local node for which packages are in the repository. And then when you can see these lists and you want to download the, the content, you want to download this package, the repository hash has a, a link to an IPFS hash of which that node also has a local node. So from your local IPFS node, you will download the hash that like the Docker image of uh, your Nethermind node, for example, uh, on execution layer nodes, and, uh, and you will install it and then you will start running it. Whenever somebody pushes an update of the Nethermind package, your DAB node is able to understand that the repository has been updated and automatically download from the very same local IPFS node that there's been an update and update the Nethermind node that, that you already had. So it basically makes it super easy to maintain nodes, to monitor them. We also integrate with Grafana and Prometheus, and we offer Grafana uh, dashboards of all the packages that you're running for, for having all the metrics. You have a certain level of notifications. We have integrated with a Telegram bot that will send you messages on your on your Telegram when there's a problem with the space on your node or anything that needs that requires your attention. And obviously, like as I said before, all of these like beautiful things, we take care of the networking so the ports don't collide. We take care of a, a VPN. So even if your this machine stays at your home and you're traveling, you can connect to your machine and, and use the RPC endpoints and, and monitor that everything is well. And we do that all through UI. All, all of this has a UI. You never have to connect to a terminal because we want to make it accessible for everybody regardless of their level of, of technical knowledge because we think that this is the way that we'll get normal people to run nodes. We'll get, we'll get passed beyond the ones that are super technical um, to, and want to give opportunity to other people that are maybe less technical to access or to be self-sovereign when it comes to access to, to Web3s or blockchains or decentralized networks. Wow, that's a really great description. I, I'm impressed by the level of thought that's gone into how to tr how to kind of provide even an auto-updating setup as trustlessly as possible, which is very interesting to hear. What other specific issues would you say have you faced in providing kind of a decentralized interface or just even a decentralized product? in order to really, you know, give, give this software over with its promise of creating people who are able to run their own stack, who cannot be censored, like who can access the network without needing to trust anybody else. Trustless, I think is the word I was looking for. Are, are there other uh, specific challenges that, that you faced trying to, trying to create the setup? Yeah, so so we we ended up like we started really headstrong like everything needs to be completely trustless, completely decentralized and we we sort of like kind of adopted this motto that says decentralize until it hurts and centralize until it works because for example, we started having like it was mandatory to sync a full Ethereum client in order for you to access the rest of features or dapps of of your dap node. So that took like People just bought their DAB nodes or installed their DAB nodes in their machines. And uh, then they had to wait for four days until all of it uh, was syncing in order to access the DAB store and be able to start downloading whatever they liked, et cetera, et cetera. So what we ended up doing was to always optional, always optional, but we ended up offering 
optional kind of like centralized but very convenient things like okay you can actually connect to our own endpoint and read the smart contract from minute one also in order for connecting to the vpn when people are in home internet connections usually have like uh, dynamic ips so if you want to connect through vpn how do you how do you let your client know that the ip has changed so we had to provide dynamic dns for for the vpn which is obviously always optional. You'll never have, by using Dabnode, you'll never have to use any centralized services that we control because a lot of that, a lot of our users are very conscious about privacy and it, we will always give the option of not doing it. But all of these like little pieces, little convenient pieces, little centralized services, we, we've, we've been having to, to, to make some compromises it, for the sake of user experience, I would say. Has that been, I'd say like, I mean, that, that's a few different UX hurdles, just kind of like the time until you're functional dealing with kind of consumer under the hood issues like dynamic DNS. Are, are there other issues that you've had in building something that's consumer ready through a UI in Web3? I mean, maybe this is the time to say that I think the, the Web3 space in general catches a lot of flack for poor UI UX. And I think some of it is because it's such a nascent ecosystem. Like we're still so close to just building out the thing in the first place that it's taken time to get like robust, intuitive UIs in front of users who maybe don't have a high level of technical finesse. Have, have there been other issues that you found in, in just like making something that's more non-technical consumer facing? Yeah, definitely. Like one of the things that we're kind of like getting used to do right now is so create an API that will that will call the CLI of a particular node or a particular client or a particular uh, DAP that's CLI only, create an API and then connect this API to a custom-made UI. So Express.js for the API, then React for the UI, and then present everything to the user in a way that they just need to click a button. But under the hood, we're just wrapping the CLI tool that that the original developers of, of this particular DAP or the, this particular node created. And we're just trying to make it easier for, for the users by putting all of these extra layers, right? Definitely not super scalable. We're doing it with some select packages, or some select applications that, that users are really demanding. But... At, especially at this moment of development of Web3, those APIs or those CLIs or the, the commands change all the time, things break. It requires a lot of maintenance on, on our part. And I would say it's like probably our main challenge right now, how to make this scalable, how to keep maintaining more, more than one or two of those. And, and when something breaks, what broke and how do we change it? If we could identify very quickly, or if the teams themselves uh, were maintaining the the DAP node packages just a, as a different distribution, like okay, we have like the, the the Docker distribution, the binary distribution, and like maybe like the DAP node package distribution, that would be that would be extremely helpful. And we're we're definitely moving towards that direction. Speaking with some with some developers, some of the teams, but yeah, this is. This is definitely like creating this extra UX on top of a command line only program. That's definitely a big hurdle. So Dapnode offers an addition to the software suite. They do offer a packaged kind of hardware node. Also, in, have there been any challenges in providing hardware 
for something that's supposed to be a self-sovereign decentralized app. Yeah, so we started by not offering hardware. Like we we didn't really think about it, which was mainly an open source uh, software project, really ide- ideologically compromised with with privacy and self-sovereignty. So, but then we realized that actually our target was someone that was maybe not super technical and maybe someone that did not have a spare machine to to have connected to their router and just churning away next to their router. Or maybe they did, but they just preferred to have something that was already prepackaged, custom. Also, another problem is that you, you'd need to do a Linux installation, which is extremely easy for anybody that has um, done any sort of like digging into how computers work but but that's i wouldn't say that this is a majority of the population a, a big majority of the population have never done a linux installation so for them we started offering plug and play hardware that comes with a pre-installed with node. so the user experience is would be as follows you receive this node you unbox it, you plug it to your router via Ethernet cable, you plug it to the power, turn it on, it'll start emitting a uh, a Wi-Fi hotspot that you can connect with from your phone or from your laptop. And then you can do the first configuration and then you just let it let it there and, and, and you connect to it whenever you need to use the nodes, when you want to check your validators, et cetera, et cetera. There's, so obviously we don't force anybody, like everybody that buys a DabNote already knows that that their address is is somewhere, right? Like you, you're already compromising on privacy. A lot of people, and we also offer the option that to people that come to our Discord channel is like, okay, you can buy the the, the hardware yourself. You you can see in our shop what the specifications or what we're recommending, and then install DabNode on top of it. Challenges on selling hardware at this particular moment, they're they're a different set of challenges on their own. Like the supply chain right now is wow, it's wild. There's just no, no computers. There's no chips and especially like NVMA disks right now. They are so hard to come by. We we had to make a bump of 500 euros on every machine because that's that's what our suppliers were quoting us for if we wanted the same the same discs that we were buying before. So over the past two years during this pandemic, the supply chain has been a nightmare and we've had to like basically double our prices in in a couple of years. But they say inflation is transitory. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I I, I couldn't help it. So once we've hit the topic of supply chain, and we are talking about decentralization. The hardware wallet community sometimes talks about supply chain attacks, even people who tamper with hardware en route to an end user. For hardware wallets, the incentive is very clear. If they can tamper with it, it could be they can compromise the accounts on the hardware wallets. But have you faced any similar kind of attacks on DAP nodes supply chain wise? Or are nodes still innocent enough and not carrying enough economic incentive to really cause that cause a situation like that? Yeah, very good question. So there's an inherent trust in us in the DabNode team when when you buy these machines, and then we take um, certain steps in order that that the courier cannot tamper with it, and there's not going to be anything on that goes from our warehouse 
to to the users to the users doorstep we we basically have to seal the packages with with a special sticker we also send the packages in unnamed boxes not very sexy for the unboxing videos but but a lot better in terms of opsec and as far as i know we we haven't found any problems nobody has complained about something being tampered also the the risk reward or, or the effort reward ratio is not as big as with a hardware wallet because you know that a hardware wallet is a is a machine that you'll definitely use to store like probably moderate to high amounts of of cryptocurrency so for example one thing that we have never done in dapnote is to try to include a wallet in it because then yes exactly then you're dealing with private keys and then you're opening yourself up to a surface of attack that's yeah, like like it, it's a lot more it's a lot more attractive for people to go after DAP nodes. So we don't have anything that holds private keys except maybe for now that we have the validators, they have the validator signing keys. But those are by protocol separated from the withdrawal keys. So it is also like the, the most that they can do if they get their hands on a DAP node and they can steal those keys, the validator keys, they will be able to maybe like slash the poor person or maybe like a ransom uh, ransom attack, which can be counteracted with a fast exit, but mostly like some sort of like griefing attacks where the damage is done, but they cannot really earn a lot of a lot of money. So we we have not had big challenges when it comes to supply chain attacks. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Also, in terms of actually choosing the hardware to build the hardware DAP nodes out of, so you've mentioned supply chain, but how did you pick kind of the underlying hardware that you've built the nodes out of? And I guess has that had to change as a result of the supply chain disruptions that you're talking about? So the design objectives here were that it had to be consumer. It had to be able to run 24-7. And it had to have a an acceptable price range for the quality that that we were that we wanted to sell. We we decided again using hardware like off-branded hardware of of like like Eastern brands or or more like unknown unknown brands and we we ended up going with Intel Intel Nooks because they actually form factor is is perfect they're kind of small and they don't take too much space they're not a big tower that you need and you can fit really powerful hardware inside. Basically, the bottleneck when it comes to having several chains in your node is the input and output. So the most, I would say that the most important thing is that if you really want really good performance, you want an NVMe disk. It works. They work fantastically well with SSDs as well, but NVMEs have a performance about five times better than just an SSD. So, so that's important. And their form factor is quite small as well. It's a lot smaller. So so we chose to go with Intels, Intel mostly i5 and i7, and NVMe disks, and then enough RAM to be to go around to to perform several tasks and run multiple chains, which mostly we, we have two configurations. We have a 16 um, gigabyte RAM and a 32 gigabyte RAM configuration. We could sell bigger machines, but they would be too expensive and probably overkill for what 
our type of users want to do. And we could sell smaller ones, but then we would have a lot of complaints because then the machine would become obsolete in in like a few months, maybe. Like if you if you have a small NVMe disk, you're definitely gonna cut on costs. But Ethereum just keeps growing. And if now apart from Ethereum, you also want to validate on Gnosis Chain, which also uses the same proof of stake protocol, then you can't because you don't have enough space. So we find this like kind of compromise between something that will last long, something that is that has good quality and won't break and has like Intel warranty, and something that's not too big that that will be completely overkill and completely like super expensive and out of touch with the average user. Let's remember that Tabnode is free open source software in the first place. So if you want to buy like and build your own massive server. You can, you totally can, and you're more than welcome to do it and, and more than encouraged to do it and, and then install Dabnode on top of it. Mm, very interesting. Is it possible to add on, like, let's say I, I go with a lower, like a smaller NVMe and it's filling up. Is there a possibility of adding on to that? Or if I go with 16 gigabytes and I want to, I want to add on, like, are there additional memory slots or does that not work in kind of like the, with, with the hardware setup that you have? Yeah, no, it definitely works. It definitely works. So the the reason why why we chose this is because it's completely upgradable as well. You can you can change the NVMe, put a different one. You can change the memory sticks, put different ones. It it has a very long tutorials of community uh, people on the on the forum saying like, hey, so my Dabnode is two years old. I needed to upgrade, and that's how I did it. And and there's a lot of like I would say like almost like every week there's somebody that's tinkering with their dap nodes and, and upgrading them and, and making them better. Very, very cool. So maybe to bring the conversation a little bit back to where we started in terms of centralization and the node running community in general, taking a look at ETH2 or the consensus layer, there definitely, I mean, it definitely seemed to me like the narrative in the beginning was much more everyone can run their own, it's going to be okay, like we won't see this big pooling of resources. But we have really seen the emergence of staking pool. I personally would suspect there's two reasons to it. Current entry for the, for the consensus layer is 32 ETH, so roughly $100,000. So for those who don't have $100,000 in ETH laying you know, laying around that they're able to to leverage for something like validation on the consensus layer. They have to come in with a lower amount and that that is one of the reasons to go to a pool. But I suspect that there's also a second, which is, it's a little bit scary, even if I do have $100,000 of Ether, full disclosure, I don't. But uh, even if you do have $100,000 of Ether there, putting it on your own machine and saying like, I'm going to do this at home and I'm going to do it myself. Like, yikes, it's a bit scary. And I kind of suspect that may be one of the reasons why we're seeing a big emergence of pools also, because they kind of take that responsibility. At the same time, that means that we're kind of watching another centralization process. So I, I definitely see something like Dapnode and what we've been talking about as a, a presence saying like, no, you can do it yourself. But how do we incentivize independent stakers? Like, how do we tell people that it's good for them to be running their own and doing, and doing it themselves? This is a really good question. This is a really good question. And right now, there are not many 
protocol level incentives that benefit the solo staker or the independent staker. And this is a problem that we need to look at as a community and we need to tackle. Going back to to the the two reasons why it's it's kind of like hard. N- number one, it's it's kind of scary, and you're absolutely right. This is a there's a tremendous amount of money, and there's there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens if I am not able to maintain those validators. What happens if I am offline? Am I gonna get slashed? And the truth is, well, no, of course not. Inactivity penalties are very minimal, are very minimal, and you can be offline for two weeks and you can make it up like most of the, it just needs to be online most of the time and with a long enough time horizon you're always able to fix whatever problems do you, you have it is important here that for the solo staker a lot of this anxiety kind of like turns into overcompensation and they start doing like complicated redundancy failover mechanisms which for the average solo staker, they are completely overkill and they have a high risk of getting you slashed. You definitely want to have your node down for a few hours or even for a few days before doing something that you don't know exactly what you're doing. But if the first node, if the primary node goes online and starts validating with the same keys um, as you have put in your failover system, you will get slashed. And that is a problem. So all of this, like people like tend to go directly for like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get slashed if I go wrong. And like overcompensating is definitely a problem that, that we're seeing in the community as well. And the truth is the penalties are very small and it's extremely easy thanks to like the ETH2 ETH stakers community or Dapnode or other communities like that. It is, there's really a lot of people that have absolutely no idea on how to do like anything technical myself i'm not a technical person and and they will find the support that they need so definitely definitely being it being scary is is a big part of it and there needs to be more education or or it needs to be put more up to the front that this system was designed for thinking with solo stickers in mind for example correlation penalties correlation penalties are penalties that they will so that the penalty that you will have for being offline will be higher the more people are offline at the same time. That means that if you have your validators in Amazon Web Services, for example, and Amazon Services Web, Amazon Web Services goes down, your penalty will be a lot bigger than the penalty that you will get if you're offline for the same amount of hours in in your own home server and your own validator and your own dab note that you have at home. Because at the same time that you are offline, there's also hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of other validators that are also on Amazon Web Services that are also offline. And in order, so this was taken into account when designing uh, Ethereum 2, and those are called uh, correlation penalties. So at the very beginning, there was a big push for um, disincentivizing this sort of like pools or this sort of kind of like big groups or, or everybody's taking on the same service. Because what's important for the network is actually to have different geolocations 
on our nodes, different political jurisdictions that control our nodes, different ISPs, different types of hardware, different types of people running them, different types of uh, software, different types of clients. That's why we have uh, multiple clients. So if there's any error in any of these pieces or any government trying to ban cryptocurrency in one place or maybe a zero day exploit on one type of hardware firmware then that the, the, the chain can actually continue so it's when everybody uses the same pools that that we're actually putting the system at risk and this should be at the very forefront because the system is designed and will be more more resilient when we have all of this like people running solo, solo staking in their own homes. Now, one thing that, that you mentioned is that the incentives that are for doing it solo versus versus not doing it. And I think here is where we're kind of screwing up at the moment. Because, for example, one of the things that I'm really, really worried about is MEV. So MEV is a big topic. And after the merge, if I am a somebody that, that, that works on MEV and I find an opportunity to extract value, what happens right now in, in, in Ethereum 1 is that you go to a service like Flashbots, a builder, and you will you know that it's a system based on trust. So you know that the people that you're giving this these tips, you're you're basically tipping them off on how to extract value. And you know there's like some kind of like trust that they will give you your part as long as you give them their part. They will not just say, thank you for the tip. Now we're going to extract this value for ourselves and leave you out of the game. So this system works on trust. And this system works on trust because there's a very few... Um, mining pools that are whitelisted and everybody knows where they are and everybody knows who they who who they is and they manage even though the actual hardware is decentralized and anybody can join these pools the actual managers of those pools we we know who they are and and we can we can work on on this trust basis now after the merge we become proof of stake and if we see that the next proposer, the next slot proposer, if we don't know who this person is and is a random stranger in the internet, maybe running on their DAB nodes, first of all, how do I find this person? Secondly, how can I trust this person to tip them off with this MEV opportunity and trust that they will just not run away with the money? So here is where we can see that Pools, all of these pools, all of these staking pools, controlled by centralized parties, we can enforce the system of, of trust, the same system of trust that, that we're having in, in Ethereum 1 right now. But the solo staker, there's no way that we can enforce programmatically any sort of, any sort of trust. At least there's no way right now. So what will happen if we don't do anything about it is that the average return of a solo staker will be lower than the average return of somebody that stakes through a pool. Why? Because if you stake through a pool, not only you get your validation rewards plus uh, transaction fees uh, after the merge, but also access to MEV opportunities, which you will not be able to if you are a solo staker. So there are solutions for this. There is proposer builder separation (PSB), and that could be uh, a way of ensuring that ensuring to the person that has found this MEV opportunity to to ensure that that they trust 
a random person on the internet, a random validator on the internet, that they will not steal their MEV opportunities from them. This requires implementation on the validator client side or some sort of middleware solution. But in any of this, so not none of these options is actually implemented right now. So this is something that I am like kind of concerned about because it definitely tilts the balance of incentives, if we're talking about purely economical incentives, towards the staking pools. And this is bad because staking pools are basically, they have pinned in their foreheads, they have big targets for regulation, for collusion. Let's remember what happened to the Steam network when Justin Sun decided to to, to pay off some of the validators in order to just kick off the network, certain actors that were disagreeing with with his takeover. So all of this can happen if we keep this trend of uh, centralization. So we need to look into this in order to ensure that solo stakers, who are the most important piece for resilience and decentralization, will actually be the ones that are the most incentivized to continue doing so. Interesting. If I, if I could try and summarize some of that, it sounds like you're really bringing up two MEV issues. One is discoverability. If I'm a solo node runner, how do I even get discovered for an MEV opportunity? And the other would be the trust assumptions going the other way. Like, let's say I am discoverable as a, as a solo runner. Why would the the person who wants to submit the packet trust that I'm not going to just front run it myself, that I'm not going to open up the bundle? and execute the transactions myself. The first one, is the first one kind of solvable with the same format that Flashbots has now? That if there's kind of like a standardized layer that's being used to settle MEV transactions, couldn't that be distributed inside clients kind of the same way Flashbots has their fork of Geth and the way that I think Nethermind also, if I recall correctly, has kind of a Flashbots module also. That way, anyone who's running will have the module there built in and they'll be discoverable, so to speak. Does that work? Am I technically understanding that right? Yes, you're completely understanding this right. This would work. But then again, we go into the second into the second option is like the trust assumptions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Do you know? Are, do you know if there's been any work done on creating kind of I, the word cartel? Oftentimes has such a bad ring to it. But I wonder if there's any way to kind of set up a reputation cartel, like you know, a group of validators that vouch for each other just to say that they trust each other without any other assumptions or any other kind of economic relationship between them to create kind of like an MEV reputation that's bound to a certain address. That's definitely, as far as I know, there's nobody building a solution like that. As far as I know, mostly we're the solution that's been sort of like favored by by the teams is a PBS. proposer block, proposer builder separation, exactly, PBS. Maybe it could even be worth exploring. It, it definitely could be worth exploring something based on on reputation. Absolutely. Especially because you you know who the next proposer is going to be every time. So is that a trusted proposer or not? So you could decide to send it to, to this person or not. 
Right, right. Very interesting. So maybe to, to backtrack to something that you alluded to before, when we were talking more about like, can people be solo stakers? So you mentioned community support that people, even if they're not amazingly technical, can ask the questions that they need to ask, get the answers that they need to get by way of community. Why, why is having a community around something like running nodes? Mostly because... There's very, very little people in the space who actually know what they're doing. So like collective knowledge and experience, the, the collective experience is just so important. It's the thing that will soothe people from this anxiety of like, okay, I need to drop 100k in here and, and I'm not sure how, like, Having this experience of somebody that has done it before you and, hey, man, it's okay. Right. Very interesting. Paul, thanks for coming on the Ethereum Characters podcast. It's been really great having a conversation with you. Thank you very much for having me.